Welcome to Hire the Smile, the podcast on all things related to human resources in veterinary medicine. Join me, Katie Ardeline, and my colleague, Mike Pownell, as we discuss how to support and take care of the people who are instrumental in making your business a success. Great businesses share one common feature. They focus on taking care of their employees. They create businesses where everyone feels empowered and motivated to be the best they can be. These businesses want highly engaged employees and they do whatever it takes to make this happen because they know that highly engaged employees lead to more growth, client loyalty, and profitability. Veterinary medicine is a challenging profession, but it can be made so much easier if we build business cultures that attract and retain the best people. Subscribe to Hire the Smile for great discussions on taking care of the people that make us all better. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Hire the Smile, where we discuss everything and all things related to human resources in the veterinary profession. Once again, I am joined by my partner in crime, Katie Arline. Hey, Katie, how are you? Michael, I'm doing well, thanks. How about you? Love and life. Summer is wonderful. It is. As all good Canadians, we just relish every moment of sun and warmth. So it's true. <laughs> we are joined by a returning and very special guest from our sister, brother, cousins across the oceans of Oculus BV, the uh, other side of the ocean from the Netherlands, Rob Kaboom. Rob, welcome again. Thanks, Mike. Nice to be back. So we asked Rob to come back to the podcast. Rob's, uh, I'll, I'll let him explain most of this, but Rob really is outstanding in coaching organizations, veterinary practices on teams, the dynamics of what makes a good team, how to select good leaders, what have you. And I thought getting his input into the discussion now is because when you talk to every vet practice, seems like every vet practice, the biggest challenge is how do I retain my staff? How do I track new ones? And one of the things that keeps Katie and I busy at Oculus in Canada with our HR programs are helping companies, vet practices that have some dysfunction in the team, not the best culture. So there's this real balance between hiring a body because we need a body because we're short of vet or a technician or what have you, uh, with welcoming in that wrong person that may have a negative influence on your culture might not be a great fit. I don't think we're going to come out of this with any specific do this, do that. Here's your answer. It's a very complex situation, but I think we can give some guidance and with guidance, I think we need to set it up a bit. So I was going to ask Rob if he can give a little bit of an overview of his history. He is a veterinarian as well, but just some of the work he does with teams and how he coaches organizations. So Rob, again, many people have listened to you before, but uh, for those who didn't or haven't in the past, why don't you uh, share a little bit about yourself? Yes. Like you said, I'm, I'm a veterinarian. I finished my studies in Utrecht, Utrecht University in Holland a long time ago, 1992. I was only a practitioner for approximately two years, and then I decided to go into the industry. I worked for Hills Pet Nutrition in sales and marketing for a period of approximately seven years, and then I made a switch to InterVet, where I became uh, responsible for training and leadership development in the organization. And there I found my passion. I always liked to coach people, to help people develop and progress. I like to talk to vets on how to improve uh, their staff, how to be better coaches themselves, how to lead properly. 
I found out in the years after my studies that was more of my interest even than the veterinary profession itself. I coach mainly in the pharmaceutical industry and also in vet practices. But also nowadays, other multinational companies do have nothing to do with the, the veterinary world. Because when you talk coaching or leadership, there's not always such a big difference between companies. The, the principles stay the same. So one of the things that we can learn from you, and I remember seeing one of your presentations or workshops at one of the Oculus events in the Netherlands, oh, four years ago, I guess, was just what makes it a highly effective team, a high-performing team. It blew me away. Uh, just the framework that you had. So maybe you just give us a brief overview of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mostly use American models. And then afterwards, I train Canadians and Americans with the American models, and they're very happy with it, which is great. I mean, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I'm a big fan of uh, Ken Blanchard. And maybe not everybody is familiar with Blanchard, but he's in his 80s now. He's the inventor of the situational leadership model, probably still the most used leadership model in the world. And he also did a lot of research into what makes a team a fantastic team. He also talked about the development stages that teams go through. I was always very impressed with his theory, and I've used it for maybe 35 years already with different teams when I coach them. I use them with teams that are already high performing, but mostly. I use them with teams that are in trouble. Maybe in short, I can tell you a little bit about his theory of what makes a team a great team. Please, yeah. He likes to use the acronym PERFORM. In the acronym PERFORM, the P stands for, as a high-performing team, you need a clear purpose. You need to know what you stand for. You need to know where you're going. You need to know your values and what you expect from your people. So the P and the PERFORM acronym stands for Purpose and Values. It's where it all starts. The E stands for Empowerment. And for me, that's one of the most crucial elements in a great team. Are you, as a leader in a practice, able to empower your people in such a way that they feel that they can use their own brain when they perform, and that the people are not just messenger girls or messenger boys for the big leader? Empowering is not a skill that you learn in vet school. It's something that you need to read about later and, and see if you can uh, do that. Because it, it means that you take your hands from people, that you start trusting them to, to use their own brain. And it's difficult for people to do that. So for me, if you run a team, it's always a great question to ask yourself, how am I empowering my people? Do my people feel empowered, that they can make a difference by themselves? It's one of the most crucial elements why a team is better than another team. The R stands for relationships and communication. Are there open relationships? Can you share critical feedback without hurting people's feelings? Can you be open and transparent? Very important in great teams. The F stands for flexibility. Are you flexible enough to do tasks that are not only your own tasks? When people need help, can you jump in and help people? In great teams, people are flexible and help. The O stands for optimal performance. Or productivity, that's an obvious one. If you want to have a productive team, obviously you need great performance. The second R, also a difficult one, I think for vets maybe, but for a lot of people, giving enough recognition and appreciation to your people. And it's also a difficult one because some people need a compliment every day. And some people, if you give one compliment every month, they say, don't overdo it, please. And there's also a cultural difference, I would say. I, I work in a lot of cultures and 
for instance, when you compare America with France, there, there are big differences in how people uh, experience compliments. In France, people are not used to a lot of compliments. They're used to, to critical feedback. In the States, people are much more willing to give the compliments. And the last M, so the last letter of the PERFORM acronym stands for morale. How is the atmosphere in the team? Are, are people happy to work there with each other? Now, I normally use the PERFORM acronym to analyze teams and see if, if everything is in place. I'm sure there are people listening to this and going, oh my gosh, wouldn't I love a team that has all of those letters? So I think this is where we're at the crux of things, that we know what we want. We don't know how we get there. So tools like this are helpful. Tools like our employee engagement survey are helpful for people to identify where they are now. But, in, and I can hear people are just saying like, that's wonderful, but I just need bodies. You know, where the demand is so high. I'm trying to hire vets. I was talking to a vet recently and has an outstanding practice. Like just, and I, you know, if I was a young vet just starting out, I'd want to go work at that practice because the owner is just an exceptional decent human being with really progressive thoughts. She can't hire anybody. Like she cannot hire anybody. This woman lives in a more rural area, but I know of other practices that are in big urban centers. And I don't know if one's easier than the other because it's just, it's so hard to hire people. And so the challenge is, is people will say, yes, I want to have this perform. I want to have, this is what I want my team to be but I just need to hire a body. I need to hire a, a license. I need a DVM. I need a LVT or a RVT a registered technician. So when we're looking at this, and this is also to Katie as well too, it's like, how does one as a practice owner bridge the gap between, yes, maybe my team's not the best and I want to have a good team, but I just need bodies. Because I think that is probably the, the existential question everybody is asking themselves right now. I don't know if either one of you have a, any thoughts on that. Maybe we'll start with you, Katie. Yeah, I think that's a really great question and obviously something that comes up multiple times per week, if not daily with the folks that we work with. But I think when you're sort of in that desperation mode, as we've called it before, I think it's really important to make sure that you are very solid on exactly what you're looking for and how you can analyze people. So if you, you know, I'm doing hiring right now for a couple of practices, and I'm really being critical about looking at candidates. And even if they don't have experience in the field, or even necessarily, let's say I'm hiring a customer service rep, maybe they don't have office experience. I'm trying to be really critical about, you know, okay, well, what else do they have? And do they have skills that we can teach them how to do what they need to do? And I don't want to dismiss people out of hand. So I think Making sure that you know exactly who you want is a is a great place to start. But really, it's not necessarily experience that you're looking for, but things like trainability and enthusiasm. And is this somebody who could get engaged? Uh, is this somebody who wants to learn? I think we have to kind of look beyond, you know, just being able to put a big X across a resume because they don't have experience and look a little bit deeper. And, you know, to Rob's point, using the acronym, I think you can still use that to help focus on who you want, you know, is this person somebody who's trainable? Is this person somebody who, how do they like to take feedback? You know, are they somebody who's going to thrive on feedback? So I think there's no short and fast answer to this. And I think it's the same for every industry. Thinking about restaurants that I like to go to who are closed randomly because they just don't have the staff or, you know, the small animal vet that I use down the street, not being open on Saturdays for a few months because they just don't have the vet staff. I think we have to be pretty creative about 
thinking outside of our usual box that we do when we're recruiting somebody and, and really placing importance on talking to the person and really digging down. And is this somebody who fits with your core values? Is this somebody who can learn? Yeah. Is it maybe something also that you always open your eyes for uh, talent? Not just during a recruitment process, but always meet people and see, hey, these people have great skills. Maybe they want to work in my practice. Is that an idea or? Yeah, you know, that's a great point. There's one practice that I work with uh, and I've done employee engagement survey and it's uh, for them. And a number of these people, you know, when I ask them, well, how did you come to work at this practice? They say, oh, well, the owner of the practice met them outside of I was doing another job and they said, Hey, I think you'd be a great fit for our practice. And they sort of got pulled in. So I think that's a really great point, Rob, is uh, you sort of have to always be looking or at least always have your, your senses up to say, is this somebody who maybe could fit with us in now or in six weeks or six months? And having those connections is really important. Great point. And, and Mike, if I may, uh, if, I, if I may reflect the question back to you, because you, you run a large practice and you know about the team theory and stuff, how do you deal with these issues? Well, I mean, we're hiring always for culture fit. We've done a number of working interviews lately. And honestly, you know, you can have somebody and they have a degree and you can ensure that they have the clinical skills that you need for your type of practice. But then it really comes down to, are they a good fit? And so we have working interviews for veterinarian positions, usually for two days, if not more, for non-veterinary positions for at least a day where they're interacting. And, and we have a real focus on our culture and the type of people that we want to work with. And ultimately, the decision is made by the, the peers of this person. Would, as, do you feel comfortable about this person? Would you want to work with them? Is this somebody that you, know, you can see yourself working beside in, in stressful moments for years to come? And, and really, they're the ones who decide. It's not me who decides as the practicing manager of the practice, it's, it's the team that decides. The challenge is, and I can just see a lot of people saying like, that's great when you have options, but when you don't have options, when you don't have the DVMs walking through the door or the anybody else, then what? I'm going to sort of uh, pivot the conversation a bit because one of the things I notice when I look online and I look at uh, veterinary practice managers or practice owner groups on Facebook, other areas of the web, you know, some people talk about personality tests. So you're interviewing somebody and yeah, we just got rid of somebody in our office because they were just absolutely poisonous, ruin the culture. I want to hire the next person or Katie and I were talking to somebody a few weeks ago. They're like, everybody I hire, I have a bleeding heart. That's because I'm a veterinarian and I like people and I think I could help them. And then they turn around and they're just, uh, they're not good people. And so I'm trying to hire somebody. I want to have a good member of my team. And so they're, right away, the question is, well, can I use one of those personality tests like the Myers-Briggs or the DISC? I mean, there's, there's a number of them. And without getting too specific on the pros and cons of each one, I'd love to hear from both of you what you think of just that approach in general. And so Katie, let's start with you. Mm-hmm. I think that personality testing, it has... Real, I think exploded in popularity and there are a number of different ones that are out there. And I think that they can be a good tool, but they're not the entire picture. So especially when we're talking in the context of needing to maybe look outside of our usual places or personalities that we would hire for our practices, I think the danger with the personality assessment is that 
Yep. They can tell you, assuming you've done the assessment and assuming you know what kind of personality is a good fit for your practice or what you need for a specific team. I think that's great. But then you sort of risk maybe missing out on somebody who is excellent because that personality, you know, for whatever that day, the testing, which isn't necessarily scientifically backed, you know, you could get different testing results depending on, you know, from week to week or day to day, depending on what's going on with somebody. So I think it's not the be all and end all. And I wouldn't make, I would never make a decision solely based on a personality test, but I think it could give you some good insight into how you would manage this person or how this person might fit into the team broad strokes. And I think if you're a miracle occurs and you have like a hundred applicants for a, a veterinary assistant position, then maybe you can go through those people really fast by sending out personality tests. But uh, I wouldn't necessarily bet the farm on those results. I'm interested to hear what Rob says. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I agree, uh, Kate. And it's, I think, a very important question to ask yourself. What does it mean to fit into the team? Because a lot of people make mistakes when they do personality testing. And the danger is that people start cloning themselves. So they look for personalities that are similar to the people already present in the team. And they did a lot of research, but the most successful teams are diverse teams. Um, Diverse men, women, but also introvert, extrovert, dominant and less dominant, creative and less creative, people who take care of the details and people who let go more easily. The best of teams mostly have the combination of a lot of these factors. So when you do personality testing, first test the people in the practice and then look for people that are different than the people you already have. That would be ideal. But even then, even if you have a nice balanced team with all personalities uh, available, then still you don't know if the people fit in the team in a way, if, if there's a good relationship, if you like the people, if they like you, if they like the culture. So personality tests is one thing, it's one element, it can help you, but be careful not to clone yourself, I believe. Uh, Look for diversity. But even then, afterwards, you still need some kind of trial period where you observe people and see how it works in practice, I would say. That's a great point, Rob, about not cloning yourself. I think that's one of the reasons why I have given up the final decision on who we hire, because, yeah, like attracts like. And, yeah, Nobody would want to practice with a bunch of me. It would just be insanity. It would just be, it would, it would blow up. But so it's nice to have other people in the practice that say, yeah, this is a good fit for us. So the other thought I had on that is, I think this is where I, I have always found the weaknesses of just like hiring based on personality tests. So let's say you've given everybody personality tests and you're like, okay, we need to have somebody, I'm just making up something now. You know, we need this kind of person to balance off other members of the team so we can have a nice, nice soup, a mixture, you know, the combination makes us all better. But then if you lose somebody else on the team, you are like, oh, now we have a hole here. Uh, We have to get rid of somebody else to sort of balance it out. And then so you're always like a like a cat chasing its tail. It's like you're always trying to hire for that specific personality. As opposed to, I think, going back to what you were saying when you first started chatting about having that situational leadership and like, if you have people have the same purpose and same values, that's a common ground that everybody has. And just that to me is where the art of leadership comes is how do you manage this group of different personalities, shifting personalities as people come and go. It's nice to say we can just slot people into perfect 
round pegs into round holes, square pegs into square holes. But life isn't like that. Life's a lot messier than that. No, I, I totally agree. And it, it all comes down also to the culture you want to accomplish in your practice. And, and if people are able to, to live that culture. If, if I may, there was also a question I had for you because you said when you recruit people, you always communicate about your culture. How would you communicate your culture to other people who don't know your practice? We talk about our values and our purpose and some of the behaviors that we look for. So, for example, I can give you two examples because we just did a working interview with a veterinarian last week. It's just like, you know what? Mistakes are not to be feared. We always make mistakes. We learn from mistakes. And so when we make a mistake, it's not like, oh, you did something wrong. It's, okay, how did that happen? What's wrong with our processes that led to that mistake? What can we learn from that so we, we minimize the chance of it happening again? So as you know, as veterinarians, we don't like making mistakes. We've all seen practices where somebody's made a mistake. There's a culture of fear. Katie and I spoke about this in a recent podcast. So right off the bat, just saying, you know what? You're going to make a mistake. We're going to support you. The other thing is, this is a tough business. It's emotionally draining. We want a team that supports and nourishes each other. And one of the ways we have found to be the best is it's okay to laugh. You know, it's a serious business, but if we can't go in and have a good laugh or take five, 10 minutes at the beginning of the day when everybody's showing up and just joke around and that's where you enjoy coming to work. And that's, you know, when you're having that good team. And so when you go to a vet that A, you're allowed to make mistakes and B, you're allowed to laugh. That signals a lot because a lot of practices aren't like that. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch more. What do you think, Katie? Because you're involved in this a lot too of practices. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's, you know, when I do interviews, getting to sort of the, the in-person or the more formal interview stage, then I'm pretty explicit about what a practice's values are, what it takes to be successful. And I'm pretty careful about the questions that I ask or the inquiry or the conversation that I have to try and really pull out from the candidate, how well they might embody those traits that we're looking for, or how well they might be aligned with what we're looking for. Uh, and I think going back to the thought about personality testing, I think personality tests could tell you about some of that, but you really have to talk to the person and, and challenge them a little bit. You know, the, to me, the personality assessment is sort of a moment in time, and it can also be gamed to some extent. People can sort of say, oh, I kind of know what they're looking for here, or, you know, I want to make myself seem like this or like that. But if you ask people questions and you have follow-up questions, it's harder for them to game the system. You can really just get a better sense of what, how well that person is going to fit. You know, I think this would be a perfect time for us to take a quick little break. We'll be right back. Do you sense that there's something not quite right with your company's culture? Is your team functioning below its potential with formerly enthusiastic staff now doing the bare minimum? Do you wish you could get an honest report card on your practice's culture and the impression you are making as an owner or a manager? It can be difficult to take action when you don't know what's wrong. If we don't address issues and challenges, we risk losing even our most dedicated and loyal staff. We don't always have a reliable way to get honest feedback on how people feel about the company or even on our own performance as owners or managers. This is where the Oculus Employee Engagement Survey comes in. Employee engagement is defined as the degree to which employees are willing to go above and beyond to ensure their teammates and clients are taken care of, and it also measures the level of commitment that they have to your organization. 
Highly engaged workforces contribute positively to the bottom line in a number of ways, including higher productivity, fewer mistakes, and better client care, just to name a few. The Employee Engagement Survey itself is a series of 33 questions based on the key dimensions of employee engagement with areas for comments from staff. The survey itself is a series of 33 confidential questions based on the key dimensions of employee engagement with an area for comments from your staff. We also conduct optional one-on-one -on -one interviews with experienced Oculus professionals to gain more context and insight. Nothing specific is shared. Staff can rest assured that there's no feedback that they're going to share that will come back to haunt them in the future. We produce a final report with reasonable, actionable recommendations. And having conducted dozens of employee engagement surveys, we are the only company able to provide vet industry-specific benchmarking data so practices can see how they stack up against other vet practices worldwide. We found that after conducting an employee engagement survey, practices know exactly where they stand with their staff and are able to make transparent, meaningful changes that result in a more engaged workforce. Owners appreciate the insights into how their actions and the company culture are affecting their team. Some even conduct surveys on a regular basis to see how they've been progressing and to detect any brewing issues before they become significant. To learn more about the Oculus Employee Engagement Survey Package, head over to our website, oculusinsights.ca, send us an email at info at oculusinsights.net, or reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Mention that you're a Hire the Smile listener to receive a special discount on your own employee engagement survey. Okay, we're back. So we're talking about that hiring process, selecting process, wanting somebody to be part of the team, married to the fact that there's nobody out there or very few people that actually want to work in vet practices. So I guess what it comes down to now, I guess what we could talk about is so you're looking for somebody, you can't get that right person because I would think number one is I think the biggest worry that I have is that you have a great culture. Everything is done well. You've lost a team member or two, who knows why. They're moving, other opportunities. Uh, you have trained somebody so well that they realize there's other things they can do beyond the scope of your practice. And so you've said goodbye to these people. And now you have to find new ones, and there aren't good ones around there. And the one thing I think, I'm wondering what you guys think, is that the danger of letting in the wrong person just because you need a body, just because you're so busy and you need another vet, or if you had another technician, you can do more surgeries. The danger of bringing in the wrong person can have such devastating long-term effects in a culture. Is it worth it? So Rob, what do you think on that? That's a good question, Mike. The danger is, is, is huge. Absolutely, I agree. If you hire the wrong person, it can have such a negative effect on the whole team, an effect that can be lasting for many, many years even. So you best avoid that. Then again, I can understand if there's almost no people you can get and you're in a situation where you desperately need somebody, I can understand people who take the gamble, who take the risk when they're not 100% sure that this is the right person. What I always would advise again is to have a trial period and to say after a couple of months, after observing that it's not ideal, to immediately say, no, this is not the way to go. Because, like I said, it will be devastating if you continue with the wrong person. Yeah, I would agree. And I think uh, it really underscores the importance of having, you know, check-in meetings with people and really making sure they understand from day one what the expectations are of the practice, you know, of the work itself. 
just almost the easier part, but also of how we interact with each other and, and what the expectations around the core values are. It's not good enough. You know, here in Ontario, there's the three month period where, you know, somebody can leave or some, you can let somebody go and you don't have to do any sort of severance payment or anything like that. And you can't wait until the second to last day to check in with that person. You have to give them a fair shake and say, okay, well, do we check in with pers- this person on day two and day seven and day 14? You know, did we support them? Did we give them every chance that we could to be successful? Because there's nothing worse than looking back and saying there maybe there was more we could have done from the beginning. And maybe this is on us, not on the person. So I think that that's something to really think about as well. How many practices do have a good onboarding system in your region? Not a lot. It depends. You know, there are practices who have seen the light as far as needing to be very supportive from day one or previous to day one. But a lot of the time, especially when people are desperate to just have bodies come into the practice, then we've heard some horror stories or seen some horror stories of there's one day of training and then you just figure out how to do it. And that's not a great place for anybody to start a new role. So I think it's relatively prevalent. And I think people have good intentions with onboarding, but you sort of, you know, after the first week, you're like, oh, well, they haven't left yet. So we'll just let them learn as they go. And that's not the right answer either. I think one of the challenges we face in our profession is that we have a hard time saying no. And because what we do is, you know, our healers, we're here to take care of animals. We don't want to say no to animals in need. And I think as a result of it, we sacrifice the people who work with us. We don't train them properly, like Katie was saying. We don't onboard them. So we're not setting them up for success. We may hire the exact right people, but we're not preparing them for our practice. And I think the the biggest taboo, I don't know where it comes from, is, is for us to say a no to new clients or no to the usual hours that we've been open or no to technologies like telemedicine that can offload some of the needs for, you know, support staff, for example, there's some, you know, by telemedicine platforms, we can automate some of that stuff to a certain degree. And I think we're so cautious about that. And I think that's what we actually need. The demand is there where we should mean we're charging appropriately. So as you were saying, Katie, about, you know, the vet who's closed on a Saturday now, or maybe they have reduced hours. I think that's some of the stuff we have to do. And I'd rather say to somebody, all right, Katie's heard me say this a gazillion times, so I'll wake her up when I'm done with my little soapbox things, is to hire the right person, unless you just, we get lucky, we all get lucky, but when we're hiring that person, if we're not hiring the right person, from the day you decide I need to hire somebody till you find the right person, whether you hire somebody now and go, oh, this isn't working out, oh, they're just tormenting the team, oops, I lost somebody who doesn't want to work with this person. All right, now I got to get rid of them before their three months are up. And now I got to start looking again. So the process is taking a lot of time. It's impacting. It's having a lot of negative impact on the practice, as opposed to I'm going to take my time and we're going to hire the right person. Uh, It may take us five months. It may take us five weeks. I'm not sure. But until we have the right person, we're not going to expand. And if we have to shrink a little bit, so be it. I think looking at our team as, you know, the foundation as or the lifeline of our practice, that's what we have to nurture. We have to nurture who's remaining. And if they're all getting tired and burnt out and frustrated, we have to slow down. 
Otherwise, we're going to lose them. And then it's just this vicious hamster wheel that we're on, always going, trying to replace, trying to replace, trying to replace instead of stepping back. And I've had to do that one, one part of my own practice right now recently, just, all right, let's step back. Let's regroup. Let's make sure we're doing what we think we're doing. We have the right people, how we're doing things just because we've always done it this way doesn't mean we have to carry on doing it this way. And I think it has two advantages. One, it, it really signals to your team that they're important to you, that their happiness, job satisfaction is important to you. And B, you're waiting for that right person who's going to be an addition to the team, not a detractor from the team. Off the snowbox, somebody nudge Katie, she can wake up. <laughs> so, so you say better say no to a candidate that is not perfect, not, 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 not good enough. Better say no to some work. Yep. Do you believe that everybody is in the position to say no to work? I mean, you're obviously in that position, but when you look at smaller practices or other practices, do you think that most people are in the position to say no to work? Of course, there are always people that can't say no. And then you have to wonder, is it because of their pricing is not high enough that they're not going to make enough money with reduced hours? Is it maybe they're not doing the right services? Because when we have a business model, let's say a spay neuter, a clinic where you're really operating on, we're doing a couple of things, we do them really well, but to do and compete, we've got to be cheap on it. You may be a business that has had a lot of growth and which means you've had a lot of expense. There's debt, you know, to grow as a practice is expensive. So you've brought on new people or you've added new services and you need to service this debt. So there's a certain level of profitability you need to have to service that debt, which people don't necessarily think about. And so you're like, on one hand, you're like, oh, you know, I'm paying a high rent in this area because I've moved into a new area. The rent's really high, uh, what have you. So I think this is where somebody has to work with their accountant and just say, here's where we are. I'd like to slow down. How do I do that? Or, or talk to a business advisor, somebody who can look at it and go, all right, here's your profitability. All right. If you reduce your revenue by X amount, what's it going to do? So I think some of these decisions need an outside eye and maybe just that somebody who can look at it and go, you know what, financially, because you may find out that you're cutting back, you're making more money and your staff is happy on top of it. And maybe you're not bringing on new clients, but let's take care of the clients that we have, the one that's been with us through thick and thin, who has been with us for a while. Let's not sacrifice our service to them by just saying yes to everybody that shows up. You know, there are people that can help these practices by looking at their financials and going, yeah, you're in a good place. Yeah, carry on. You can shrink. You'll be fine. Okay, good. They're willing to listen? Well, there's <laughs> that's the other story. We didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a good question, but it's also hard because it's, we're all human beings, we're creatures of habits. And to do something that is so opposite or contrary to what we have done, everybody is going to, we need some convincing sometimes that's going to work. I have found with veterinarians is that if you can give them a logical path, they're much more accepting. And then when they realize the benefit this will have long-term, then again, they will be more accepting. This is going back to your point about situational leadership. And then a lot of this is how do you express this to the team of why are we shutting the doors? Why are we closing early? Why are we not opening this day? You know, why are we limiting the amount of surgeries we're doing? And we have found is the more uh, transparent you can be with the team about why you're doing things, uh, the more accepting and understanding they are. 
Yeah, I think it will definitely help for vets to read a couple of books on leadership. And there are so many great books that have been written. And like I said, I'm a big fan of Ken Blanchard. And he wrote about, I believe, 50 or 60 small books about leadership. And these are not heavy uh, books. These are written in a novel style. Sometimes you read them in two or three hours. And they give a lot of insights on how to empower people, how to use the right leadership style. So most vets that I meet don't do this. They don't read these books. And just read on your holiday, read one or two of these books. It will really help you. And it's also a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, I have to agree. I just I, I remember knowing of Blanchard and then having you recommend a couple. I mean, yeah, you read them in a day, less than a day, a couple of hours, some of them. But they really have excellent points of real life situations. And the other one I'd recommend, too, in terms of organizational health in a very accessible manner is anything that Tom Peters has written. Because he really focuses on these people first organizations and how they make it for exceptional teams. So, well, hey, I want to thank you both. This is, again, I wanted to, to bring Rob into this discussion just because of the work he does of teams. Because this is just sort of this holy grail in the vet profession now of that tension of having to hire the right people versus I just need to hire somebody. Hopefully we've given some insights to people. And as always, if you have any questions, anything uh, about your own practice, please contact us and we'll be happy to share. So thank you all. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Rob. Bye-bye. Before we sign off, uh, we have time for a listener question. This is an interesting one. And I think one that applies to a lot of people. Question is, I live in a very rural area and I need to hire a vet for a very busy two veterinarian companion animal practice. I can't get anyone to respond to my job as let alone interview them. We live in a lovely area with a lot of great recreational activities. It's safe and we have clients who will do the best for their pets. We pay very well and offer a lot of benefits, including health care. Does nobody want to live in rural areas anymore? I'm desperate and I don't know what to do. Michael, do you have thoughts? Oh, I have thoughts. But, you know, I actually, some of the times we get a question, we're like, I, I got a solution. You know, we've had some encounters on this. You know, we sort of have some experience, but just the way the scenario is out here, I just said, I got to do some research because I'm sure you're hearing this question. I get this question a lot. And so I, I just sort of looked at like, so what's happening in the human field? I mean, in North America, we were having a hard time getting human physicians in rural areas, let alone veterinarians. So I sort of looked at four different areas and this sort of doing a bit of Googling search as I was Googling around. First off, yeah, financial, you know, you may have to just like really pay more than other areas. In the research I was doing, there's some really mixed results on it. Some people, there's one group in the States that said, you know, hey, we're having to pay a premium and it, it seems to be working. It's fine. And uh, I just saw an, uh, an article this morning in Canada, very timely, where they're trying to get doctors and it's, there's, it's just not enough. And so I guess mixed bag on the financial aspect of it. Second one was taking a cue out of what uh, companies are doing for specialists. Bigger, you know, you're seeing this more and more of the corporate practices with specialists where they sponsor a specialist in a residency. And so why not? Uh, and this is being done is it's sponsor a veterinarian who's getting into vet school or who is in vet school you know, maybe when they're in their third year to say, hey, we'll help you with your student debt. They've got to pay, you know, sign a three-year, four-year contract with you. And that has been successful for some people. I think the challenge is, is 
those who are from a rural area are more likely to go back to a rural area. And so some of this is just the problem of admittance. And if we're getting more and more people from urban areas, it's, it's a challenge. But that's one thing to look at. Here's a really interesting one. And this is a group out of Kansas. And the way it was described, it's in a pretty remote area of Kansas on the Kansas-Colorado border. And what they have done is they have really focused on the mission of their, this is human medicine group practice, but you can apply the same thing to a veterinary practice of uh, really mission focus. And so like they're saying, okay, we're not going to get be glam. We're not going to get, you know, it's not a, this is not a big urban center, not a lot of great restaurants, like being really upfront about it, but we want people that have a purpose of, of why they're doing what they're doing. This group as in terms of their mission, have a lot of people who do a lot of missionary, medical missionary work in underdeveloped countries, and they give them a couple of months off a year. And so they can go to wherever they want to go to help out, sort of like a Doctors Without Frontiers type. So that's one area too. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about mission and purpose. This sort of goes into my last point, and that is one of the things that we notice, and I know you work with a lot of vet practices to help them put together job ads and, and help them hire, is a lot of the ads start to sound the same and look the same rather. So this really becomes a lesson or a, an exercise in marketing of how do you make your ad stand out? And I would love to get your thoughts on this too. Like when I see a lot of ads, it's a lot of like, oh yeah, we have a great team, great medicine, listing all the equipment and the benefits they have. but they all start to sound the same. So it really comes down to maybe if you're in a very rural area, you probably are not going to want to, are you going to get the new grad who wants sort of an exciting city job? Or do you want to maybe pursue somebody who's been out for a few years and now they're starting a family and want somewhere, you know, small town or somewhere safer, uh, somewhere where people know their neighbors that may attract those people. I know some ideas I've seen some vets who have actually have had videos of the vet practice owner talking about their practice, what it's all about, have had you know, video interviews with staff, other vets talking about what a great team. That's a great way to really stick out and, and highlight your job ad amongst all the others. What do you have to say about that, Katie? Any tips on that? No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I really like the idea of promoting the lifestyle that your area can offer as a bonus. People might think, oh, I need to live in an urban center. I need to have access to great schools or restaurants or whatever, but they might not necessarily have thought through the quality of life that they can find in a rural area. So I think that's important. And also just really, you know, my n number one cardinal uh, sin of doing a job ad is cut and pasting a job description, which is sort of what you talked about, like listing all the yeah. equipment, blah, blah, blah. Let's assume that everybody has all of that stuff. I totally agree. You need to talk about what makes you different and you have to be able to stand out. And I, I really like the idea of having videos that you can link to just showing that you've put some effort in to make an honest uh, depiction of what it's like to work at your practice. And of course, if it uh, if you don't have anything to say and nobody will say anything good about the practice, <laughs> that's a whole other kettle of fish. And I think the other thing too, and I'm just looking at this one is that they pay well, is that's something that maybe the head of your ad is not wanted. One companion animal veterinarian rural practice is like pay down your student debt qu quicker. Mm -hmm. And in the ad, talk about like, hey, we're paying this amount. 
And what that means is rent in this area or to buy a new house is this much. Give them something to compare against. So, you know, let's say I know one person I talked to several months ago was had a very similar situation and they're paying like very low six figures, but like a house in that area, like a pretty nice house was like 300,000. And I said, well, if you're thinking about that or even, you know, mortgage rates and all that, if you're a new grad or a, you know, a young vet with daunting student debt, you're going to be able to pay a lot off quickly. And all of a sudden that becomes something that's really attractive. I just think we got to be creative in our ads and not just go, well, that's what everybody else is doing. Uh, that's what we need to have for an ads. Like you got to stick out somehow. Yeah. Great point. Great answer, Mike. I would love to say that just do that and you'll, you know, the phone will be ringing off the hook. It's, it's hard, but I think these are four tips that will at least start getting people thinking about you. You'll get more than no responses. I'm pretty sure about that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Good job, Mike. All right. Well, and just a reminder, if anybody has a question about anything related to HR, human resources and their practice, you can come to uh, oculusinsights.net, any of our social programs, info at oculusinsights.net and submit your uh, anonymous question and we'll be answering it. Right on. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Welcome to Hire the Smile, the podcast on all things related to human resources and veterinary medicine. Join me, Katie Ardeline, and my colleague, Mike Pownell, as we discuss how to support and take care of the people who are instrumental in making your business a success. Great businesses share one common feature. They focus on taking care of their employees. They create businesses where everyone feels empowered and motivated to be the best they can be. These businesses want highly engaged employees and they do whatever it takes to make this happen because they know that highly engaged employees lead to more growth, client loyalty, and profitability. Veterinary medicine is a challenging profession, but it can be made so much easier if we build business cultures that attract and retain the best people. Subscribe to Hire the Smile for great discussions on taking care of the people that make us all better.